So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Let's pray. Lord, we come into your presence tonight. We are thankful that you are always so accessible. You tell us to come boldly before the throne of grace. And the only reason we can come boldly is because of what Christ has done for us. By ourselves, we have no right to come into your presence, but through Christ, who paid the price for us as our intermediary, we come through him to you, Lord. And we're thankful that we can make our requests known to you. And so, Lord, no matter what is going on in our hearts or in our nation, we just cast all our cares on you tonight because you care for us. We are anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we thank you, Lord. We make our requests known to you, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. You are sovereign over the nations, Lord. You're sovereign over kings. And so we pray, whatever the outcome of the election, that there would be peace in our land and that you would accomplish your good purposes. And so we look to you, we trust you. And we thank you for this time we can open up your word tonight. Lord, speak to us. Thank you that you've given us a glimpse of these things that are to come, that we might be ready, that we might be prepared, that we might have more of a burden for the lost in our world as we see the days approaching. So, Lord, teach us now, instruct us through your word. We love you and we give you praise, glory, honor, and thanks in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 13 brings us right in the middle of the timeline here because we are uh, a little more than halfway through the book of Revelation and we find ourselves in this period of the seven years of tribulation which is outlined between Revelation 6 and 18. When you look in your Bibles where we are right now in chapter 13, there is this storyline between chapters 12, 13, and 14 and this is what the storyline looks like. In chapter 12, Uh, God gives us the explanation of his redemptive plan through a woman and a child. And we talked about how ultimately the woman was a picture of Israel, that the Jewish nation gave birth to a Jewish Messiah, that child is Jesus, and uh, through faith in him, anyone can be saved. And, And yet, that redemptive plan has been opposed, that's chapter 13, has been opposed uh, by the dragon, which is Satan, the beast of the sea, we'll talk about the beast of the sea tonight, that's the Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth. Both of those two are mentioned in chapter 13 tonight, so we should, Lord willing, get through the discussion about the beast out of the sea and the beast from the earth, which is a reference to the Antichrist and the false prophet. So they stand in opposition to God's redemptive plan when the tribulation period comes. Those two are about being the Antichrist, a global world dictator, and the false prophet, a global religious leader. And between the two, they are adamantly opposed to God's redemptive plan that is still going on even through the tribulation period. People can and do get saved during the tribulation period. It's just uh, much more difficult and uh, a lot more trying, and you, you lose your life over your faith. 
during the tribulation period. And then chapter 14, which we will get to maybe next week, is the proclamation of that plan by three angels. It's interesting that the only time in the Bible when angels are given this opportunity to present the gospel is found in Revelation chapter 14. The beautiful right and responsibility of sharing the gospel uh, God has entrusted to mankind. But why is it in chapter 14 that he entrusts it to an angel specifically who is going to be sharing the gospel? We'll talk about that more next week when we get into chapter 14. There's a reason why he entrusts it to an angel in sharing the gospel where, where otherwise it's normally entrusted to, to people, to you and me. Uh, but for tonight, we're here in chapter 13, and so uh, let's take a look. I'm going to read, um, this, this chapter is divided into two sections. The first section from verses 1 down through verse 10 has to do with the Antichrist, otherwise known as the beast rising out of the sea. And then verse 11 through the end of the chapter, through verse 18, is about the false prophet. So this is kind of like the, um, you know how Batman and Robin were like the dynamic duo? Okay, these two here are the demonic duo, all right? And they are, they are the villains of the story. And they are, they are working in concert to um, advance Satan's agenda in the earth. So if you think that Satan's agenda is bad now, I mean, just try to imagine during a period of the tribulation time when you have these two world figures who, who rise uh, onto the world scene uh, and, and try to advance a, a demonic agenda, even more so than, than some of the things we see around us today. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 first. We'll talk about the Antichrist, and then we'll look at the last half of the chapter and talk about the false prophets. So uh, here we go, verse 1. Then I stood, John writing here, then I stood on the sand of the sea. Now this is a, this is a vision that he's been given here. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power. Who's the dragon? Satan. So the Satan gives the Antichrist, his power, his throne, meaning his authority, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. We'll talk about that. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon, Satan, who, had given, who, who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who was like the beast, who was able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's the second half of the tribulation period, three and a half years. And then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith 
of the saints. All right, let's pause there for a moment. So, so here in chapter 13, Satan continues to wage war against the kingdom of God. And it tells us here that Satan, otherwise known as the dragon, raises up two imposing figures uh, onto the world scene during the last days who, who come to some measure of prominence at the beginning of the tribulation, but it isn't until halfway through that they really exert their authority and their power. And those two imposing figures are, of course, here the Antichrist and the false prophet. One, the Antichrist is a political global leader. He's he's a world dictator. The other, the false prophet, is a religious leader. He is, a, he is the leader of what will end up being a one-world religion. So we're going to end up, the Bible tells us, with a one-world government led by a dictator known as the Antichrist, and there will be a one-world religion that will be led by uh, the false prophet. And these two work together. Now, when we talk about the Antichrist... Um, we, we need to understand that there is a difference between Antichrist, capital A, and Antichrist, lowercase a. Because the Bible tells us that there is one Antichrist, capital A, but that there are actually many Antichrists, lowercase a. And here's the reference for it. For those of you who are taking notes, it's 1 John 2, 18. This is what John, same, same writer of the book of Revelation, in one of his other epistles, in 1 John 2, verse 18, he wrote this, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, capital A, is coming. Even now, many antichrists, lowercase a, have come by which we know that it is the last hour. So John writing here in his epistle of 1 John says, listen, there is coming an, an actual individual who will be known as the Antichrist, capital A. But then there are also people who operate with spirit of Antichrist, people who, have, who will rise to power and prominence in the course of world history who will be inspired by Satan, uh, led, led in, in, in evil ways, who will promote evil uh, and propagate evil upon people in the world in the course of their leadership. Of course, um, when, when John is writing here, someone on the world scene in his day uh, that would have been familiar to, to the saints in the first century was the Roman emperor Nero. Now, Nero was clearly an antichrist, small a. He just wasn't the antichrist because we know from history that Nero was brutal. I mean, he, he, he killed uh, Christians by the thousands and he took great delight in torturing them too. History tells us that he would dip Christians alive in tar and then light them as human torches in his garden. So that's the Roman emperor Nero. Now, There are some people in the interpretation of the book of Revelation who hold to a view. I don't, but there are some who hold to this view. It's called the preterist view. The preterist view of the book of Revelation is basically that all the events in the book of Revelation are not prophetic. This is the view of the preterist. The events in the book of Revelation are not prophetic. They're actually historical with the exception of the return of Christ, which is still to happen. So those who hold to the preterist view, again, which I don't, I don't, I don't believe it's a, it's a good view, they would see the book of Revelation not as prophetic, but as more historical, and thus the preterists would interpret Revelation by saying that the Antichrist has already come. 
And, and in fact, the preterist view, when you look up, if, if you like to research this kind of thing, the preterist view of who the Antichrist was is Nero. So they, they look at events that have already happened and they say, no, the book of Revelation is just written in, in typology to refer to events in the first century. John was actually writing in kind of hidden language to talk about events in the first century and that the Antichrist he's referring to is Nero. Okay, now again, I don't, I don't buy into that, but that just is a preterist view. But there have been other, I do believe, however, that Nero was an antichrist, small a, like other people in world history. Clearly, Hitler was an antichrist, small a. Now, again, at the time, in the 1930s, the evangelical church was convinced that Hitler was the antichrist. And, you know, panzer tanks were pulling up outside their churches, and, and evangelical Christians in the, in the late 1930s were thinking, this is the end times, Hitler is the Antichrist, uh, Mussolini is the false prophet, and, um, and, and they, they began to, you know, wrap their theology around world events, and it's, it's sometimes dangerous to do that. We have to step back and say, okay, clearly Hitler was an Antichrist, but he wasn't the Antichrist, as horrible as he was. He wasn't the Antichrist. There are other people uh, that historically have been viewed as an Antichrist. Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin, the dictator of Russia, was, is known historically as the greatest mass murderer of all time. He killed an estimated 30 million of his own people. So was he Antichrist? Well, of course he was that's demonic. I mean, that's evil. So he's inspired by some satanic influence there. No doubt you're, you're butchering 30 million of your own people. By the way, Joseph Stalin, Joseph Stalin was the one who said, quote, the people who cast the votes don't decide an election. The people who count the votes do. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, friends. I'm just telling you, he's the one who said that. Idi Amin would be seen as, as an antichrist. The butcher of Uganda. That's, that was, he was called the butcher of Uganda because, again, he butchered many of his own people. So there are a lot of people, when you look historically, that would fit the, the idea of being Antichrist lowercase a, like John is talking about there in 1 John 2.18. Uh, but then there is the Antichrist. There will be one individual who will emerge on the world scene and will end up being a global dictator. Now, Interestingly, the word Antichrist does not appear anywhere in the book of Revelation. Um, it, 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 it only appears in John's other writings. That's the second bullet point there on the screen for you. Uh, John writes about him four times in 1 John and two times in 2 John, specifically using that word Antichrist. But otherwise, the name Antichrist doesn't even appear anywhere else in the New Testament and doesn't appear once in the book of Revelation. But it's become such a commonly known name that, you know, even people who don't know their Bibles and aren't Christians, when you say the Antichrist, you know, people have some semblance of, of knowledge of, oh, yeah, it's some evil world leader. And, uh, and so even though the word Antichrist doesn't appear in the book of Revelation, the word that appears is beast. That's the word that is used for him, uh, and that is the word that is used here in chapter 13, the beast who rises out of the sea. So here are a couple of titles and uh, names 
for the Antichrist. Again, the word beast is the preferred word that describes the Antichrist in the book of Revelation used 28 times. But his title is also the man of lawlessness, NIV uses that title, or son of perdition, New King James mentions that title in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He's known as the foolish shepherd in Zechariah 11. We're going to read from Zechariah 11 tonight. And also he's known as the king who exalts himself from Daniel chapter 11. We're going to read that passage as well. In fact, if, if you would, just put a place there in Revelation, but go over to your Old Testaments to the book of Daniel, if you, if you can find it for the moment. If not, if you just want to listen, I'll read it to you. But Daniel chapter 11 where the prophet Daniel writes about the Antichrist and uh, refers to him as the king who exalts himself. And there's some detail in Daniel chapter 11 that I want us to see as we just kind of get an overview of who the Antichrist is and, and what he's going to be about. Even though we, we, don't, we, you know, we can't identify him at this point, uh, some people have asked, you know, will, will, will the rapture occur before the emergence of the Antichrist? Or will, we're, or will we still be here to see the Antichrist on the world scene? That's an unknown. Uh, he, he could be uh, on the world scene now, but, you know, just has not really emerged, obviously, to prominence. Um, but I'm not sure that we'll even be here by the time that he's, that he's known. But in Daniel chapter 11... Uh, Daniel writes about him. I'm just going to read verses 36 to 39. And he says this, Daniel 11:36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself. So this king is, he's referring to the Antichrist. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods. Right? That's what we just read in, in Revelation 13, 6 shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. That means the end of the tribulation. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. All right, your attention for a moment. A couple of things just from this passage that are worth pointing out. So we get a, a description of the Antichrist in terms of uh, a little bit about what he's going to do and who he is. One of the things that mentions there in verse 36 is that he shall speak blasphemies against the God of God. So he will curse the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will curse, he will blaspheme the God of the Bible. Um, he is unashamed uh, in doing that. He's very vocal about it. In fact, back in Revelation 13, verse 6, in the passage we read a moment ago, it says specifically, then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And so it just vile blasphemies will come out of this guy's mouth. That's one of the characteristics. Another characteristic uh, about him is that he will continue in prominence till, verse 36 says, till the wrath has been accomplished. So he has power until the end of the tribulation. When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, which culminates in the battle of Armageddon, then Jesus will overthrow the nations that advance against Israel, and he will destroy the Antichrist by the presence of his coming. Now, not annihilate him. He's still going to be judged. 
but he will end his power when Christ returns. And then it tells us here in Daniel 11, I want you to notice also in verse 37, it says he will have no regard for the God of his fathers. Now, that's an interesting idiom. If you have an an NIV or an ESV version of the Bible, it says he has no regard for the gods, plural, of his fathers. But the Hebrew word is Elohim. Elohim is a word that describes the God of the Bible. Elohim is, is a plural word in the Hebrew. It's interesting because... You know, God is a singular God, but He appears in a plurality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it is not inconsistent for God to be known in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures as Elohim. Elohim is a plural word because God is singular but reveals Himself in a plurality. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the NIV and the ESV translate Elohim literally here in Daniel 11. But New King James settles on what the real context is. And the real context is that the Antichrist will have no regard for the God of his fathers. What does this mean? This is likely an idiom that is a Jewish idiom, meaning that it is likely, this is my personal, I believe this, that I'm not the only one on this. It is likely that the Antichrist may be Jewish, but that he will have no regard for the God of his fathers. He will not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob like his Jewish uh, um, heritage would tell him to do. In fact, he blasphemes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that, is, that could be an idiom there, the, the God of his fathers. He has no regard for the God of his fathers to let us know that, in fact, the Antichrist may be Jewish. And, uh, and, but that, that is up for debate. That, that's my personal persuasion, but that's up for debate. Then it also adds there in verse 37 of Daniel 11, that he will also have no regard for the desire of women. Now, I have, you can read some commentaries and some Bible scholars believe that might be a statement that he in fact will be a homosexual because he, ha- he will have no desire for women. But when you look at, at Jewish idioms again, Rather than it being that, I think that what, he's, what it's referring to here is the desire of women in, in Hebrew scriptures was the Messiah. Every young lady hoped to be the vessel through whom Messiah would come. It just so happened that in God's providence, he already selected Mary through whom Messiah should come. But it was the desire of every woman that she should have that privilege of giving birth to the Messiah. So it's a Jewish idiom. He has no regard for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he has no regard for Jesus. That's the Antichrist. He speaks blasphemies against the God of the Bible. He speaks, I'm going to need, by the way, that back, well, I have my watch, so I, but I need the backlight on, guys. Um, he, he has no regard for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, and he has no regard for Jesus, the Messiah. And so that is all part of the characteristic of the Antichrist. And then last point here from Daniel chapter 11, it talks about there in verse 38 that he will honor a God of fortresses, which, which says to us that he will hold unilateral power and he will use the military to subdue uh, all of the people in the world. Now, How does the Antichrist actually come to world power? I'm going to get a little ahead of myself, but just to give you a preview. In Revelation 17, it tells us that there are 10 horns, and John helps us out in Revelation 17. He goes on to say, and the 10 horns are 10 kings. And it tells us that the 10 kings 
give their power and authority to the beast. So that's in Revelation 17. We'll get to that a little bit later. But I, I wanted to just give you that preview because, you know, how does the Antichrist all of a sudden come to this global world leader? He will be a global world dictator. How in the world would other countries give their power to one individual? The Bible just says it's going to happen. The Bible speaks about a time that is coming when the globe will be divided into 10 geographical territories, and that each of those 10 territories will have a king. And, you know, you can begin to see a little bit of this when you look at the European Union and, and you know, there's, there's the addition and then the disintegration with Brexit and a little bit of all that stuff going on. But you can begin to see how on the basis of perhaps economic necessity, perhaps, I mean, just, just look right now at what is happening and how our liberties have been tested, should I say, just because of COVID and how people have decided to, you know, um, resort to different um, uh, protocols uh, just because government has said, you know, we need to do this and we need to do that, okay? And, and so you can begin to see that perhaps out of economic necessity, health necessity, there will be things that will drive nations to form confederations. And the Bible just, you know, how is it going to happen? It doesn't spell it out for us, but it just says that there's going to come a time when there will be a 10-nation confederation, 10 geographical territories where all of the nations will be divided into these 10 territories. And in Revelation 17, it says that there's a king of each of these territories. And it tells us, Revelation 17, 13, and they, the 10 will give their power and authority to the beast. They hand over world domination to this one leader. So this one individual is going to be a very, very charismatic, very charming uh, political world leader who, who will be entrusted with the domination of the world. This is the Antichrist. Now, real quickly, I want to go back to the book of Revelation now, chapter 13, and I want to summarize... Um, pretty briefly here, these five things about the Antichrist that we see here in Revelation 13, the first 10 verses, the wickedness, the wounding of, the words of, the warfare of, and the worship of the Antichrist. You see, you see these five things in the first 10 verses of chapter 13. I'm just going to run through them pretty quickly here. So the first one is the wickedness. The wickedness of the Antichrist is seen in verse 2. It tells us that the power, throne, and authority all come from the dragon, that is Satan. So Satan is behind the Antichrist. So that's clear. He's wicked because he is a tool of Satan. And then the wounding of. Now this is interesting. In verse 3 here, back in Revelation 13, in verse 3, it says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So what exactly does this mean? Well, back up earlier in this chapter, it talked about how the beast is described as having seven heads, which doesn't mean that he was a monster. What it means is he had authority, and the seven being a number that, that um, indicates world power. And it tells us that one of the seven heads receives this wound. So there's a lot of debate about what this actually means here. 
But when you look at this passage, and if you have a, a, a pen or pencil in the margin of your Bible, you might want to write Zechariah 11, verses 15 to 17. Or for you note takers, just write down Zechariah 11, 15 to 17. And you, you can turn there also if you want, or just listen. I'm going to read it. It's uh, one of the tiny books of the Old Testament. Um, and Zechariah 11, when you compare Zechariah 11 with, with Revelation 13, here's best scenario of what may in fact happen to the Antichrist. There will be an assassination attempt on his life. And in fact, it'll be successful to a point because he will be raised from the dead. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but you'll see when we get to the false prophet, the role of the false prophet is to bring life to the Antichrist. So there seems to be a wounding that the Antichrist receives, some kind of an assassination attempt, from which he recovers or is healed miraculously, not God's miraculous power, but counterfeit miracles. You know there is such a thing, right? And, and, and when you look at what happens there in Revelation 13 with Zechariah 11, so I'm going to read now Zechariah 11, verses 15 to 17, and this is what it says. Zechariah 11, verse 15. And the Lord said to me, Next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. The word foolish literally translates wicked. This is a reference to the Antichrist. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. Listen to this. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Now, when you put that together with Revelation 13, here's the picture that it paints, is that there's probably some kind of assassination attempt against the Antichrist. It, it wounds him, and when he recovers, he still bears the, the injuries of, of his attempted assassination. So when it speaks there in Zechariah 11 about uh, his arm shall completely wither, his, his right eye shall be totally blinded, um, it, it could be that he sustains an injury. Let's say it's a gunshot wound. You know, Zechariah uses the term sword. I mean, they didn't have guns back in the day. So is it a literal sword? Is it a gunshot wound? And, and we know that injury to the right side of the brain causes left side paralysis. So it speaks there of his right eye being totally blinded, and then it talks about his arm shall wither. So that speaks of perhaps atrophy that sets in from an, an arm that becomes um, not functioning after a, a brain injury, a traumatic brain injury. So, you know, we're trying to piece all this together, trying to make sense of it. But one of the things we know is when you go back to Revelation 13, regardless of whether or not this is an actual assassination attempt, the injury that he sustains is so severe that when he's healed from it, when he suddenly recovers to, to some degree, it will be enough that people will worship him. It'll be so fantastic that people will be like, wow, he's a God. And they will actually start to worship him. And that's what it says in the rest of verse 3. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Verse 4, so they worshiped the dragon. They realized that the power of the Antichrist is from Satan. They start worshiping Satan. And they worship, this is verse 4 still, and they worship the beast. Saying who was like the beast who was able to make war with him. 
This guy recovers from a mortal injury. And, and so this guy's godlike. And people will actually start to worship him. And we're going to see in a moment that the false prophet starts to point people's attention, fanning the flame of this kind of idolatrous, evil worship of the Antichrist. And then also, just going down my list here on the screen, the words of the Antichrist, he speaks proud words, blasphemies against God. We've already talked about that. The warfare of the Antichrist is in verse 7 where it tells us that he was given power to make war against the saints. Now, the saints are referenced to Christians. So believers who, are, who get saved, remember, there's a, there's a whole you know, slew of Christians who are taken from the earth at the beginning of the tribulation. That's, that's the pre-trib when Christ comes in the clouds, takes the church. But then there will be other people who will be able to get saved during the tribulation period. Those Christians who get saved during the tribulation are also known as, you know, the Bible uses the word saints. You know, we don't, you know, we, we don't venerate people, um, but we, we recognize that the word saints applies to Christians, to believers. And that the Antichrist will use his power specifically to target Christians. And he will persecute those who accept Jesus during the tribulation. I mean, this is a guy who's already blaspheming the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's blaspheming Jesus. So what do you think he's going to do? Leave Christians alone? No, he's going to persecute them. He's going to go after them. And in verse 8, it tells us that everyone worships him, worships the Antichrist, except those who become believers during the tribulation. They refuse, and for that they will be martyred. So that's the whole picture of the Antichrist. Now in the last like six minutes we have left, let's take a look. Actually, this doesn't take as long, but let's take a look here at verse uh, 11. I'll read down through the end of the chapter, and then we'll quickly talk about the false prophet. And so then he says, I saw another beast. This, the Greek word is alos for another, meaning another of the same kind. So he's, he's cut out of the same material. Another beast coming out, up out of the earth. Now this is interesting. This is not the sea. By the way, when you, when you read references to a body of water in the book of Revelation, it, it almost never refers to a body, a body of water. When the Antichrist emerges from the sea, it really is a picture of emerging from the sea of humanity. Antichrist comes and emerges from among the people. The false prophet emerges coming up out of the earth. It's a picture of he's bringing about a very worldly system. It's a very worldly religious system that he's going to be about here. He comes up out of the earth and he had two horns. And two is, is uh, the number for testimony. And, he's, and, and look, it, it, he says he's like a lamb. He's not a lamb, though. And spoke like a dragon. So like a lamb, you know, a lamb is the word that Jesus uses, capital L, more than any other title for himself in the book of Revelation. So the idea of a lamb is it's a religious connotation because lambs were used for the slaughter. So he comes like a lamb, meaning he has religious testimony, but he spoke like a dragon. So he, he speaks with deception because, again, Satan is behind him. So he's very duplicitous, comes across very religious, very high and holy, but he speaks like a dragon. I mean, Satan is just manipulating him and he's speaking through him. And verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes or literally makes forces the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. 
you see. So the false prophet is drawing everybody's attention. Worship the Antichrist, worship the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. So notice, it was a fatal wound, but he, but he comes alive again. And the, and the false prophet no doubt had something to do with raising the Antichrist from the dead. Because the next verse, verse 13 says, he, that is the false prophet, performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth inside of men. Who, who does that remind you of? Who, who also in the Old Testament had power to produce fire from heaven? Elijah the prophet. So he mimics Elijah the prophet. This is all part of deception here. And verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. What a great religious guy that is, that is right? And he causes all, in other words, he, he forced everyone, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Again, a lot of people who don't know the Bible, they will at least be able to tell you that oh, yeah, the number 666, that's the Antichrist. All right, three quick things about the false prophet here. Uh, his purpose, his power, and his plan. Again, he emerges as a religious world leader to lead what will end up being a one world religion. So you have one world government led by an antichrist. You have one world religion, a false religion led by this false prophet. His purpose is to draw attention away from God and onto the antichrist. That's his purpose. And he causes, there in verse 12, we read it, he causes, he forces, he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the Antichrist whose deadly wound was healed. So see, the false prophet has a role in the healing of the Antichrist from this mortal wound. And so together, these guys are both seen as like superstars. I mean, they are just, they're worshiped as godlike creatures here. His power. The second thing is his power. He had miraculous power. You know, there are counterfeit signs and wonders. That's why it is important, even today, don't embrace everything that looks miraculous because every powerful manifestation is not necessarily a manifestation from God. That's why we have to test the spirits. We have to test the manifestations. And, and people sometimes have asked me, don't you, don't you want to embrace this manifestation or that manifestation or this thing or that thing? And, you know, the, the only guidebook we have by which to test all supernatural signs and wonders is the Bible. If it is not in the Bible, run from it. I mean, you know, people who, who listen, we all have a fascination with the supernatural. I get it. We all do. You know, something spectacular, something miraculous, something supernatural. But don't let your fascination with the supernatural cause you to believe everything that is supernatural as if it's from the Lord, because it's not everything is. Obviously, a lot is, but obviously a lot isn't. 
That's why we have to be very discerning as Christians. This false prophet is going to exercise power that has been given to him by Satan. And he has power to bring down fire from heaven. Oh, this looks like Elijah. He has power to raise the Antichrist from the dead or at least bring healing to his body from whatever this injury is. And people are going to be enthralled by him, fascinated by him, want to worship him. And the false prophet keeps directing the worship to the Antichrist and away from God. This is going to be the way that the world goes underneath their leadership. And it's interesting also because verse 15 says that the false prophet orders an image of the Antichrist to be set up in the temple of God. And then the false prophet has the power to give life to this image. Now, there's debate about this. Is this actually the image, the actual personage of the Antichrist who goes into the temple of God and proclaims himself to be worshipped. This is what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians. Or is it that it's not actually the Antichrist himself, but it is an exact replica, an image of him, a statue of some kind, and the false prophet gives life, the Bible says there, gives life to this image. But now, interesting, there's different words in the Greek for life. It is not bios. That, that's biology. It is pneuma. That's the Greek word that is used here. The life that is given to this image is pneuma. There's this spiritual, supernatural thing that is given to this image. So we don't know exactly if it is the Antichrist himself or it is an image, a statue of the Antichrist. Either way, they defame the temple of God by setting up this image of the Antichrist or the Antichrist himself in the temple of God. Now, a couple of things quickly. Number one, it tells us that the temple will be rebuilt. Because presently there hasn't been a temple on the Temple Mount since 70 A.D., not a Jewish temple. And so the temple will be rebuilt in Daniel chapters 9 and 12. Daniel talks about the Antichrist enters into a covenant of peace with the Jewish people. The temple will get rebuilt. And the Antichrist will occupy it either in person or by his statue. And this is what Jesus said was the abomination that causes desolation. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said this, verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. So Jesus refers to this event. When, when the Antichrist occupies the temple and, and he declares himself to be God. And then thirdly on the list here, the plan of the false prophet is that he forces everyone to receive the mark of the beast without which you cannot buy or sell. Now, this has brought great speculation over the years. The number is 666. Um, what he tells us here is that it will be required if you want to buy or sell, if you want to buy food, you're going to have to take the number during the tribulation period. Christians won't take the number. So they will either die because they can't buy or sell, and they'll eventually starve and run out of supplies, uh, or they, they will not take the number and they won't worship the beast and they'll be martyred for their faith. So it won't go well in those days for Christians, but the good news is they're going to heaven, all right? That's all our good news, eventually. No matter what happens on earth, you know Christ, you're going to heaven. But the number 666 here, 
The number six in the Bible is the number for man. Uh, Mankind was created on the sixth day. It could simply be that this is a triplicate to indicate, you know, mankind, 666. It could also simply refer to the dragon, Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet. Um, Whatever it is, it is a number that people have tried to figure out over the years. It's just not worth figuring. I mean, I I remember when when the little... um, uh, chip came out on our on our uh, credit cards and had that little um, that what what are those things called that little uh, yeah hologram thing yeah and people were like it's, it's the mark of the beast I can't use my credit card it's not the mark of the beast and then when barcodes came out on everything barcodes barcodes mark of the beast mark of the beast I mean I've heard everything Ronald Wilson Reagan well, did you hear that one too his name had six letters Ronald Wilson Reagan six letters six letters six letters he's the antichrist I heard this I heard this week too now listen I'm just being the messenger not the, don't don't shoot them I'm just but if you take the, the year 2020 this election year and you divide it by the number that Biden used as his cam- campaign text number It's .0666. I'm just telling you what people have... Look, look, I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying there's all this kind of weird stuff where people are like, it could be this, it could be this, it could be that. I don't know. Here's, here's the good news. I don't plan to be here. I don't plan to be here. I plan to be gone. Because when Christ takes the church, we won't be here for all of this. So if you want to sit around and try to figure out what 666 is, you, you, you're wasting your time because for believers, our hope is that we won't be here. And I'll close on that note because I'll read from 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 to 9 is what it says. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen for that? Amen and amen. We'll pick it up there next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and again, even though we read things that are heavy in Revelation, we thank you that we know how the, how the book ends, and we know the last chapter, Lord. And we thank you that you're our hope, that you are our future. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that we um, have the promise of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. This world will get crazy and crazier still, but you are high and lifted up and seated on a throne, and You've prepared a place for us. And you tell us, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you, in my Father's house are many mansions. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you might be also. You are our hope, Lord. And so we put our trust and our hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. God bless you all.